Father, we, we thank you for this day that you've given to us to rejoice in you and to gather together and, and worship you the way that you have providentially ordained it to where uh, the Lord's Day worship would fall on the day that we celebrate the incarnation. It's such a wonderful marriage of these, of these things and a great Emmanuel, God with us. That God would be divine and powerful and strong is expected, but that God would be incarnate and come to dwell among us as a man, that's extraordinary. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to be filled with awe today, awe and gratitude and worship, and um, help us, Lord, to set aside all distractions and all other things and to appreciate and to enjoy the moment that you've given to us now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is truly a, just a joy to be able to worship together, um, period, but then to be able to worship together on this Christmas day. It's just really, um, it's a real incredible privilege that the Lord has given to us. Last time this happened was 2016. We were meeting at Ulatus Cultural Center, renting space from the city, and they would not provide an employee to open the building for us, so we could not meet and have church that year. And so we are, um, we're, we're thankful, we're reminded to be able to have a place in God's provision like this, where we can meet and open the doors on every Sunday and Wednesdays and, and really whenever we want to be able to gather as the Lord's people and worship is a, is a great privilege. And so I'm, I'm glad that we can do this today. Um, I think as we take a look at the incarnation today, God becoming man and dwelling among us, it's good to take a step back and remember um, really what this event signifies and in many ways how this event is the beginning of a cascade of events that's to come, which would ultimately lead in the cross. Um, we, I know it's kind of funny to think about probably the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day that we're celebrating his birth, but the reason why he came, the reason why we have this day is because that day is coming. And that day we look forward to the, the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection, because that's the day where um, our sin is paid for. And we even want to gather together on a day like today or any Sunday to worship. Because as a people that have been redeemed by him and bought by the blood of Christ because of the death, burial, and resurrection, this day is now worth rejoicing in what it truly signifies in God coming and dwelling among us. You know, for the believer, really every day, I mean really every day, especially every Sunday, is a remembrance, it's a celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection, of looking back upon the Lord Jesus' life. And we certainly include this day as well. But I think especially as we, as we consider the incarnation today, it's good for us to take a step back and remember why this day exists within the, within the larger context of what Scripture says about it and why is it even happening in the first place. God had created mankind. We take a step back and we look at the big picture. We remember that God had created mankind. Mankind had fallen into sin. Or that God promises to redeem man. 
And from there, the pieces begin to fall into place as to how this would happen and when it would unfold. And then the piece that we consider today is a major one of the beginning of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and his journey towards the cross. And then we're going to be in John chapter 1, verse 14 today. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But we want to consider what it is that John writes in this verse. And as is our prayer every Sunday, is that this verse would help us more fully and more genuinely appreciate love and worship God for what it is that he's done for us. So John chapter 1, verse 14, just one verse today reads this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You don't get very far into verse 14 when you see these words, the word. And it should cause us to stop and to consider what is it that John is talking about when he says the word. Who is this one that is became flesh? It's such a big deal that this one, the word, became flesh. He dwelt among us and he has this particular glory and he's full of grace and truth that it's worth writing down in scripture for us. But who is this one? Who is the word? And luckily for us, we've seen that John has already spent a little bit of time unfolding who the Word is. If we read in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we get a better idea of who the Word was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, so now we know that the Word was a he, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Referring specifically to the Son, the eternal divine Son, um, a very unique thing happens to him when he comes and he dwells among us in the flesh. But that's not when the Son came into existence. The Word, as we see, referring to the Son, was with God in the beginning. He was God. All things were made through Him. And He and in Him was life, and life was the light of men. But Jesus Himself, as the Son, pre-incarnate, eternally existed, divine, always sharing the perfect, divine, eternal, unchangeable unity with the Father and the Spirit of God. Our God, the Bible teaches us that our God is a triune God. He exists eternally as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, not three almighties, as we've seen a couple weeks ago, but one almighty, eternally existent in three persons. And the part that we look at today is the person of the Son coming and dwelling among us. Scripture is so clear on the nature of Christ, who he is. Colossians 1, 19 would say that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, talking about the Son. That all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
And then he would say later on in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I mean, Scripture is abundantly clear as to the divine nature of the Son and his maintaining that divine nature even when he comes and dwells among us as a man. That he can come and dwell among us and lose none of his divinity. How, how, is, he, how is it that he is able to maintain 100% of his eternal and divine nature and take on, as we will see, 100% of human nature? Surely this is something that only God can do, and he does. And the word has always existed. And, it, and as we will see in our text, it is... Um, surprising to us and extraordinary that the eternal divine son who is incorruptible puts on corruptibility. He's incorruptible in his nature. And yet it tells us then the word, the one who is divine and eternal and incorruptible, became flesh. He puts on that which is corruptible. These might be the most astounding words in the whole passage. I said my prayer for God to be divine is fully expected. For God to put on flesh and become a man. Now that's extraordinary. He became flesh. He emerged. He always eternally existed. But he emerged from his divine state into real space and time and dwelt among us and putting on flesh bones and being composed of all the same materials that you and I are composed of. The very thing that God created, he enters into and becomes a man with one of us. And I think here it's important for us to stop and consider really again the larger context. Thinking about the incarnation, we ask ourselves the question, I think the important, one of the important things to ask ourselves is why is this even occurring in the first place? What is it that compels God in his eternal and divine nature, which is incorruptible? We realize that, that God in his eternal existence needs nothing from outside of him to, that can contribute to him, right? I mean, he is perfectly always eternally happy and joyful in himself. If there was something that existed outside of God that contributed to God, then that thing that existed outside of him that contributed to him would be greater than him, and therefore God would not really be God. And so God, there's nothing that exists outside of him that contributes to him. It's not as if he gains really anything in his nature internally by doing what he does. And so why does God do this? And the answer to that question is, for all of it being for our benefit, so that we might have salvation, so that we might be redeemed. It is it's an absolute, pure act of divine love and mercy and his free will for him to enter in and to put on flesh and to dwell among us and to ultimately go and suffer upon the cross. It shows us and it reveals to us, us the depth of the love of God for mankind. It is as Dan read for us, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Why does he come? 
so that he might be our Savior, so that he might come as a baby, live a perfect life, die a horrific death, and conquer death by his resurrection from the grave, and now sit eternally in unparalleled glory and beauty and majesty as he awaits the time for him to bring his children to be home with him. It's, it's incredible. The incarnation is a decisive step towards salvation and the cross. Again, the church father Athanasius says, being by nature bodiless and existing as the word, by the love for humankind and goodness of his own father, he appeared to us in the human body for our salvation. Him coming and putting on flesh. When John writes that the word became flesh, that's specifically what our eyes are being drawn to today. That moment where he puts on flesh and begins his ministry to secure a people for himself and accomplish salvation for mankind. One thing that occurred to me as I was preparing for this is that in all this talk about the manger, God becoming a man, you have to actually assume that Genesis 1 through 3 is absolutely true. The creation of the world by a divine being, that creation falling into sin and rebelling and a turning against the one that created them, and then facing the penalty and the punishment for that sin and that disobedience, and then the promise of a Redeemer to come who would make all things right, and in which we celebrate here today. I mean, if you're here and you are truly celebrating what Christmas is all about in, in the Word becoming flesh, then you have to absolutely assume that Genesis 1 through 3 is absolutely true. That we are in desperate need of salvation. And what we are celebrating today is the momentous occasion when the incorruptible put on corruptibility for us. It's, a, it's an extraordinary act of divine love. John Owen would say this, and this is a little bit of an extended quote, but I feel like it, he says it well. Poor creature, how woeful is your condition, how deformed is your appearance. What has become of the beauty and the glory of that image of God in which you were created? How have you taken on you the monstrous shape and image of Satan? And yet your present misery, your entrance into dust and darkness is no way to be compared with what is to ensue. Eternal distress lies at the door, but yet look up once more and behold me that you may have some glimpse of what is in the design of infinite wisdom, love, and grace. Come forth from your vain shelter, your hiding place. I will put myself into your condition. I will undergo and bear that burden of guilt and punishment which would sink you eternally into the bottom of hell. I will pay that which I never took and be made temporarily a curse for you that you may attain to eternal blessedness. And he speaks about what it is that, that the, the Word, the Son, is doing. That we may attain and partake of that eternal blessedness. 
And he does that by coming and dwelling among us. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. What's extraordinary is that he didn't just come and dip into mankind for like a moment or a year or some short second, but that he came and he dwelt among us. He lived among us for some 33 years. The word is he came and dwelt. He came and tabernacled among us. And in, and in coming and, and tabernacling and dwelling among us, he shows that he fulfills what it was that the tabernacle previously stood for. The place where people went to worship. The place where people went to find redemption and forgiveness of their sin where the sacrifice would take place. Christ, by coming and tabernacling among us, saying, all of that that you previously went to do at the tabernacle is now found in me and in me alone. The eternal word has come and dwelt among us, putting on flesh, and he pays the penalty. And he, then he becomes the object of worship because he is the one that pays our debt. And in him, we find salvation. He is the sacrifice. He is the, pre, the great high priest. And he is the one where you could find salvation in him and in nobody else. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you, how do you think of him? Who do you say that he is? We're talking here today about, about eternal divine truths that God has written down for us in his word. That the reason why we celebrate this Christmas season is that it, it is a, key, a, a keystone moment in securing salvation for sinful man. And so my question to you is, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, who do you say that he is? What, what is the Christmas day, the season, the birth really all about? What are, we, what are you looking upon as you see this manger, this, this divinity-filled manger? Do you see just, just a baby that was extraordinary in his life as he grew up that ended in a horrible death? Or do you see God himself dwelling among us to purchase salvation, which is available to any and all who would come by faith? And would you come by faith to him today? He came and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us to accomplish his earthly ministry. Truly being Emmanuel. God with us. It goes on to say that he came and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father. We have seen, John writes, that not only have we have seen, but we have gazed upon, we have beheld. That word seen means to behold, to gaze upon, to look intently at. When you look at this, the manger scene, either displayed in some sort of nativity or in your own mind, is it a scene that you quickly pass by? on your way to the gifts that are under the tree or the stockings that are hanging by the fireplace or to the food that's spread upon the table? Because John says that his glory, what's being revealed here is a glory of, that's unique. He says, we have beheld his glory, glory as the only son, the only son from the Father. He's saying that in this scene here, there, there is a glory that is being displayed. It is, it, and it's not just 
trickling out, but that it is beaming with radiance and majesty. When you, what, what is it that you behold? What is it that you see? Do you, and when you see this scene and you consider this scene or you read it in Luke chapter 2, are you intently looking and gazing upon it? To behold the, the uniqueness of the glory of God that is found here. John would go on later to write another book titled 1 John. And he would go on to begin that book with similar words. He says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, He's talking about gazing, intently looking in, upon this person. And we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's, he's using all of this language that he can try and muster up and think of in order to communicate the, the possibility of fellowship with God. He, and he's saying, look, th this was the, the word we have seen him, like we watched him live. We saw his miracles. We heard his teaching as, as one who, as it came from one who had authority. We looked and, and carefully, we investigated. We, we were walking with this man and we touched him and we held him and we heard him. And we became convinced that he was God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Christ come to save mankind from their sins. And I am trying to write this letter to you to convince you and to help you understand who he was so that you might have fellowship with us and have fellowship with him. And so how the question becomes, how do you look at the word become flesh? This man who in his birth takes on the name Jesus from Nazareth. Do you see him as just a man or do in, intently beholding him and looking upon him, do you see the manifestation of the glory of God? Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiance of God's glory. As a man, as a baby, or as a teenager, fully always radiating the glory of God. His glory is testified to at his transfiguration, when his divine nature is completely revealed. And Jesus' glory at that moment, as it will be for all of eternity, is a glory that induces worship. When you behold Jesus for who he is, and when you see his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, the next natural step that should take place is worship. For the glory of God is unique. There's no one like him. 
the glory that God has, in, in ter- you know, intrinsic to his nature that he shares with nobody, the Son fully has, and the Son reveals the glory of God. And the human heart, when it catches a glimpse and perceives the glory of God, is drawn to worship. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that it's God's glory that transforms us. He would say in 2 Corinthians, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We all believers with unveiled faces, having the penalty of the law paid and and taken away, are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You want to know the, 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 the best tool that God uses to transform you, to be more like Christ, to sanctify you, it's beholding his glory. There is something so, there's something so wonderful, there is something so incredible about the pure divine glory of God that when the human eye can see it or catches a glimpse of it, the, the immediate response is, is, I want more of that. And I, whatever I have to do to be in that presence of that glory is, is I will do. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3 that he considers everything as rubbish. He would lose everything if it meant that he could be with Christ and behold his glory forever. The glory of God is something that is so captivating that when you see it, you never want to let it go. And it transforms us and it purifies us to be like the one that we're beholding. And so the question would then, I think, come into mind is that if the glory of God isn't that incredible, if there really isn't that much of a desire to see the glory of God, then perhaps what has happened is that you've been captivated by a lesser glory. Perhaps there's something of this world, a thing person I mean these are so common in our culture especially on this on this day isn't it incredible that the things that we give to one another are the very things that can tend to draw our attention away from what it is we're really celebrating we always run that risk right I mean as parents I was having this conversation with Abigail last night. I said, the greatest gift, really, that you could give me tomorrow morning is just, I just to be able to see you enjoying opening the things that mom and dad had given you. And yet, those things that we give them are the very things that can tend to distract us from the sanctifying, satisfying glory of God. We want to give gifts because God has given us a gift. We want to be like him. We want to 
because God is a giver and he's given us the greatest gift in salvation. We want to be givers and we want to give good gifts. The problem is, is that we give things to others that are a temptation to replace the giver in God himself. And so we're always saying, take this, enjoy it, use it. Please don't break it. But it's nothing compared to the one who has given us life. Even if we had nothing, even if we, you woke up Christmas morning and there was nothing there, even if all you got to do to, was come to church today, we would still be celebrating with tremendous joy because of the gift that God has given to us in which we cannot repay. We just simply we respond in worship and love and adoration for what he's given to us. And so consider if the, if the deity-filled manger scene isn't captivating to you, what is captivating you? And we've seen his glory. John would go on to say, and he closes the verse with this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace. When you look upon Jesus Christ, you're looking at the fullness of God's grace. When you look upon Jesus Christ, you're looking at the, on the fullness of truth. He spoke truth. He embodied the truth. He, he is the truth. And in him, the grace of God is most clearly received, experienced, and enjoyed. You know, God gives us it gives all people, to some degree, common grace. There are good things that God has created that even the corruption of sin in the world has not completely done away with. And those things are just by God's common grace all people get to, get to experience. But, oh, there is a grace of God that is received in the Lord Jesus Christ that is sweeter than any other. Grace, unmerited favor. We just don't live in a society. We don't, have, we don't maintain relationships with one another like this. Our relationships with one another are usually some form of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And there's always some sort of give and take. Why did you hit your sister? She hit me first. I'll be an I, I'll share when he shares. But that's the grace of God is, is unmerited. There's nothing that you've done. There's nothing that you can do to earn his, his favor and his grace and his mercy that is, again, not just dribbled into your life, but is poured out upon you like a fountain. He's full. We see his glory. When we see his glory, there is a grace of God that just it washes and cleanses the sinner and purifies us, and it captivates us, and it, and it satisfies us. This is how people, if, you, if you're familiar at all with stories throughout church history and you wonder how do certain people endure incredible difficulty and hardship for the name of Christ persecution suffering watching their children suffer and still maintain their allegiance to Christ and it's because they have been captivated captivated by a grace that cannot be replaced by anything else they see in him the fullness of God's glory and that is more valuable than anything. 
God's grace, his unmerited favor become, in truth, become crystal clear when we behold our Lord Jesus Christ. He is full of truth because he is the truth, incapable of lying, fully trustworthy, fully reliable. And he proved all that beyond a shadow of a doubt by his resurrection from the grave. We, God, God holds out to us someone who is always good and completely trustworthy. I mean, we long for human relationships like that. And how often do we search for those, for, for a relationship that is completely trustworthy and someone who is good and faithful to the end among us when it's been guaranteed to be found by God for us in Christ? Why would we not run to him? Why would he not be our joy? Why would he not be our treasure? Full of grace and truth. His glory has been revealed, accompanied by the fullness of grace and truth, so that we might worship him who came to take our place. I pray that that has been what has been communicated not only by me, but by the Spirit of God through his word to our hearts this morning. And it has set our hearts on a trajectory, at least today, to worship him for what he has done and the gift that God has given to us. There's a time in our service where we partake of communion. We do this every Sunday because it is a, the clearest, one of the clearest reminders that we have in Scripture of the gift of God for us in the Son coming and paying the penalty for our sin. Like we're looking upon this day but this day is pointing towards another day, the cross. And that's where our, our minds and our hearts are drawn to now. If you're visiting today, North Hills, and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know him by faith and by faith alone, you're trusting in his completed work upon the cross for your salvation, then we do invite for you to partake of communion with us. If you do not know him by faith and by faith alone, and if you're in some way feeling like your good works contribute or you will be made right with God based upon you being some sort of degree of a good person, then just know that that will fail you. But, and do not partake of the communion today, but consider what it is that has been said this morning and how salvation can be found in him and him alone. So the elements are on the tables behind you, a table here and a table back there. You can get up and grab the elements and return back to your seat. And we have a few moments of um, prayer and meditation, and then we will partake of communion together in just a few moments.